we are working through the book of Acts as a church, the New Testament book of Acts, uh, which tells the story of the early church. And it's an inspiration and encouragement to us today because the same God who worked in powerful ways way back then, 2,000 years ago, is the same God who works in powerful ways today. We were just singing about that, our trust, our faith, that God will do again what he has done before and work in his people. And in chapter 13, which we're in today, there's, there's a little bit of a, a shift. So, so far in Acts, through the first 12 chapters or so, uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is reconciliation to God, that there is hope of eternal life. The good news started from Jerusalem. It spread in Judea. It spread to the neighboring region of Samaria. And, and it really started to spread around the world. But it was, it was often kind of incidental to, to persecution. You'd have Christians going, oh, you want to kill us, maybe we shouldn't live in the city anymore. And they'd go and they'd go and, and share the good news of Jesus in other cities. And so that's how it was kind of spreading. But in chapter 13, there's a, there's a bit of a shift because now, directed by the Holy Spirit, you've got Christians who are actually deliberately, intentionally kind of going out to plant new churches, to share the good news in areas that haven't seen it yet. It's, it's starting to spread. To use, to use a term that we've used a lot in the last couple of years, it's an outbreak. People thought it was going to be just confined to this one little area. Oh, it's okay. It's just in Jerusalem. But it's actually a gospel pandemic. Call the WHO. Lock everything down. Spreading everywhere, this gospel is infectious. But this, of course, is, uh, is a pandemic of healing and restoration. This is the kind of pandemic, this is the kind of outbreak we need today, isn't it? Kind of outbreak that brings restoration in a world of brokenness, in a world of, 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 of weakness, of sickness. You've got the gospel going and making people whole once again. Uh, last week we were in, in uh, we started in chapter 13 and we saw how the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas, she's still Saul in, in, at the beginning of chapter 13, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that the Spirit was calling them to. And, uh, and we talked about how the church in Antioch where, where uh, Saul and Barnabas were leaders. This was a kingdom-oriented church because they didn't just kind of hold on and say, no, 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 we don't want you to go. They actually released Saul and Barnabas, said, yes, if this is what God is calling you to do, go and, and do it. And uh, it's interesting because the first place they go to actually is the island of Cyprus, which is actually the homeland for Barnabas. And I like how one commentator says the, uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is not always contrary to common sense. We sometimes think that if, if I'm surrendered to God, that God is going to send me to some far-flung place. He's going to have me doing things that I never would have pictured myself doing. And maybe, sometimes, but sometimes he sends you to the people that you know best, that you intuitively understand. Barnabas knew the culture and the customs of Cyprus, and that's where God is going to send him to go. He doesn't just negate our personal experience. He, he uses it to make his grace known. We're going to pick it up in verse 4 uh, today, but let's pray as, as we do that. Lord, I'm so thankful. Thankful for uh, your word that we're going to be in this morning. Thankful, God, that you have left us a witness about who you are and what you have done and, and that through it, it's, it's a living word and you are continuing to encourage us and speak to us and, and shape us and form us today. I'm so thankful, Lord, for, for the church, for your people that you've called together and for all who are here today uh, and, and who are listening, who are thirsty to know you more. Thank you so much, Lord. 
And so we pray that, that in this time that I would be your servant and that you would move as you, as you will, that you would move in our hearts and, and convict us and, and awaken us and, and heal us and restore us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 13, starting in verse 4. It says, The two of them, this is Saul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alumus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alumus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So all of this happens on the island of Cyprus. You're going to get to know Mediterranean geography a little bit over the next year or so. You got a, a map there. So there's, there's Cyprus, a very important island, just over 100 kilometers west of the mainland, which would be modern-day Lebanon and Turkey. Um, there were two main cities on Cyprus in the first century. You had Salamis on the, the far eastern side and the Paphos on the far western end. And uh, all this action that we read about here happens in, in Paphos. And we read about an encounter between three, primarily three human beings. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, Bar-Jesus, his, his attendant, and, uh, and Saul, or at least the apostle formerly known as Saul, now known as, uh, as Paul. But, uh, so what, what I want to do is I want to look at each of those three in turn. We'll look at each of those characters and what we see from them. And we'll start with this guy named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, that name means literally son of Jesus or son of Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name in, in Greek. And uh, Luke tells us that he was Jewish. By ethnicity, he was descended from Abraham. Growing up, we assume that he would have heard stories about how his ancestors had been, sa had been saved from Egypt out of slavery. He would have heard stories about how God had revealed himself to his ancestors at Mount Sinai. He would have heard stories about how God had sent prophets to his ancestors to call them back to faithfulness. He would have heard all this because this was his background. This, this was his heritage. He was, he was Jewish. This, this, was, this was his people. This was his story. But Luke gives, Luke gives us another word to describe him. He says that he was a sorcerer. And that's actually the Greek word magis, which the plural would be magi. You, you know that. That's, that's a, Chris, a little Christmas reference. Look at that. Christmas in October, guys. I don't even like, I don't like Christmas at the beginning of December, but here it is in October. Uh, those are the, the three 
the, you know, in, in lore, in folklore, it's the three, the three wise men or the three kings. Uh, there's not really a number there, but, but it's a number of these wise men, these, these counselors or advisors. They weren't actually kings. They were, they were government counselors and advisors. And they had some interesting advice. One Greek writer says that uh, if you told a magi that you had a toothache, they would tell you to put uh, to, to boil earthworms and then pour them into your ear. So basic medical procedures that we're all familiar with today, like that kind of thing. Um, so they had all this, this counsel and advice, but oftentimes it was based on astrology. It was based on divination. It was based on, on magic. They had these kinds of solutions for the, the problems in your life. This, this is how they kind of found those solutions. And, and so this is how Bar-Jesus is functioning in Sergius Paulus's court. He's an advisor. He's a counselor. He is drawn to the magic arts. He's so drawn to them. It's so much a part of who he is that he actually is going by the name Alumis, which is an Arabic word, an Arabic name that means something like magician or sorcerer. So so big for him. Here's the problem, though. Those two words, Jewish, and sorcerer do not go together. They're not supposed to go together. In Deuteronomy 18, we read God saying, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who's a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It's pretty clear, right? If you are part of God's people, you don't mess around with this stuff. You don't mess around with this occultic, sorcery, magic stuff. These two, these two things don't go together. In fact, they're, they're in opposition to one another. Which is why later on, Paul's going to say you're actually a son of the devil. It's why Luke calls him a false prophet. Not because he's falsely predicting things that don't end up happening, but because he is falsely claiming to be a source of divine revelation. He's saying, yeah, yeah, this is what God is saying. And he's totally, totally off. See, I think there are actually a lot of people in our world today who are doing something like the, um, the Illumis thing. Maybe not exactly the same. I personally don't know any sorcerers or magicians. Maybe you do. Uh, but as far as I know, I, I don't I really know any. But I do know a lot of people who are, do, are trying to do this kind of like syncretistic, mishmash, mix and match spirituality kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like there are people who have this have this kind of sense of heritage in Christian faith. Maybe their parents or grandparents were devoted believers. Maybe they, they've come to church once in a while. Maybe there's just like a residue of kind of cultural Christianity there. And so they kind of take that and, and then they mix it with all of these other kinds of things. Like, like Bar-Jesus, you know, he had, this, he had this Jewish heritage and he was mixing it with a, spiritu- a spiritistic kind of Gentile context. And, and that's what a lot of people today are doing. They're doing this like mishmash kind of spirituality thing. And what it amounts to actually is not that much different from source. Hear me out. Sorcery, if you think about it, really is the manipulation of the supernatural to accomplish my own purposes, right? It's me kind of manipulating uh, God, even if, if I can. And that's what we do when we create this God of our own making instead of submitting 
to who God has shown himself to be, we instead go, well, this, I like this piece, I like that part, and I'm just going to kind of put this, this, this picture together to my own liking, to my own cultural preferences. We're trying to manipulate God, form him in our image, make him submit to our whims and desires instead of the other way around. And it just doesn't work. It, these two things, just, it just simply doesn't, it doesn't work. It's like oil and water. You know, it's, um, I mean, you could tell that because when people like that actually come across the authentic gospel, there's this radical all or nothing call of Jesus that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where Jesus says, look, either you are all in or you can't be my disciple. When people hear that, they go, well, no, I'm offended by that. They resist it. They fight against it. They try to turn other people away from it. And so someone who claims to have some heritage from the kingdom of God ends up being an agent of a very different kingdom. That's what we see with Alumis here in Acts 13. And, and there are some people today who just need to hear, you, you can't do it. You, you, you beware this example. Beware the example of Alumis. Stop doing that. Jesus' call is to go all in, to have your heart fully devoted to him. Don't try to do this halfway thing. Then we turn to Sergius Paulus. This guy is called the proconsul of Syria. And I learned some stuff this week, which I guarantee probably won't make a difference in your life, but you're at my mercy right now, and so you're forced to learn it as well. Uh, so I learned that there are two, two kinds of provinces. There were two kinds of provinces in the Roman Empire. So you had imperial provinces, which sounds like something from Star Wars. But these were the, these were the kind of the areas of the Roman Empire that the, the, the emperor felt like they're, they're, these places are, are they're, they're places where there's, there's revolts, there's uprisings. These are places I need to be really on top of. And so he kind of had more direct oversight. He would appoint governors. Uh, it, got, it, was, it, was, it was this kind of con these contentious areas. Judea, with Jerusalem at the center, was absolutely an imperial province. But you also had senatorial provinces. And these were the places the emperor felt really secure about because they, there was no threat here. He could give oversight of these places to the, the Roman Senate because uh, if a senator wanted to overthrow the emperor, he's not going to get any help from a senatorial province. It's totally fine. And Cyprus was one of those. Cyprus was one of those places. And so those didn't have governors. They had proconsuls appointed by the Roman Senate. And I actually wonder if this helps explain why Sergius Paulus was maybe more open to the gospel than if he had been, let's say, a bloodstained governor who was constantly executing rebels and, and exerting Roman power by force. Because he really did seem to be open, didn't he? I mean, he, um, Luke, Luke says that he was an intelligent man. And that word is not always positive in the New Testament, not because God hates learning or education like some people think, but because intelligence is often mixed with arrogance. Because people who are very intelligent sometimes go, well, I don't really need, certainly don't need God. I can figure it all out on my own. But Sergius Paulus, he was a man who was, he was curious. He had heard something about Jesus and he said, I want to know more about Jesus. In fact, he was so hungry and thirsty for this that he didn't wait for Saul and Barnabas to show up. He sent for them. He said, come please. I want to know. I want to hear about this. And as any preacher will tell you, and even those who are passionate about sharing the good news, this is like the dream right here, right? Because we're begging for people to listen to us. Come on, please, please come and hear what I have to say. 
You know, I, I remember when I was a youth pastor hearing about youth ministries that would promise uh, like a free iPhone or, or Xbox to whoever brought the most friends to youth group, right? It's like you get the kingdom of God and, the, and call of duty all in one shot. And go, what, what can beat that? Pure, absolutely pure motives. But here, Saul and Barnabas don't need any bribery or trickery. I mean, Sergius Paul is, is, is just saying, I want to know more. Tell me more about this Jesus. He's, he's, he's totally open to this. But there's a problem. It's a major obstacle for him. And that obstacle comes in the form of Bar-Jesus or, or a Loomis. It comes in the form of this, this attendant who is right there kind of whispering in his ear. And you could see how this would work, right? You could see how a Loomis might say, hey, I'm Jewish too, just like them. Like, who are you going to believe, me or them? I've been with you this whole time. What they're saying, it's a bunch of garbage. Don't believe anything. I, I'm the one who's telling you the truth. And you could see how he could try to pull, pull Sergius Paulus away from what he was hearing. Because, because influence is a really powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times we, we associate influence, the vulnerability to influence, especially to, to adolescence. Um, when I was a teenager, I didn't think that I was, I was vulnerable to, to negative influences, really, at all. I thought I was, I was if, and you've, you've maybe heard stories of me t- talking about when I was a teenager, but I was like the most conscientious teenager of all time. I was a Pharisee. I, I was devoted to the rules. I knew the rules. I was never going to break them. I asked my parents every night before I went to bed when I was 15, 16 years old if I had been disrespectful to them that day. I was the weirdest teenager, I think, that has ever walked the face of this earth. Um, And I was also absolutely terrified of girls. Like just, you know, like like any any somewhat pretty girl, I was just like sweaty palms, nonsense, jumbled words coming out of my mouth. I just like, it was a whole physical reaction kind of thing. And and yet there was one girl uh, in the upper echelon social dynamics of high school who would actually talk to me. It's just made my day. I don't know why she did. But for two years, she tried to convince me to skip a class with her. She was pressuring me to do this. I think there was some, I, I'm guessing there was some kind of like joy in corrupting the school's biggest goody-goody. I think that might have been part of the, the deal. So she, she pressured me for two years. It's not like, we're not talking about like alcohol or drugs or partying. We're talking about skipping one class. I was like, no, never going to do it, never going to do it. Last day of grade 12, I'm like, all right. I've, you know, I've, I've been having this pressure for two years. I, mean, I go, finally, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I give in. I will skip a class with you. Turns out that 95% of the student body was skipping class that day because it's like the last day of high school. But, uh, but anyways, I, sk- I, I actually gave in to the influence and I skipped this class. I did what I thought I would never do. And then I summoned up the courage to ask her if she had a boyfriend, which of course she had for like three years. So the, the, the super popular girl wasn't actually... Was it actually interested in the, in the super goody-goody nerd? Who would have thought, right? But my hopes were crushed. I was like, why did I even bother doing this? It was pointless, <laughs> giving, in, giving in to the influence. <laughs> so we, th- we think about it as being this thing that, you know, as adolescents we're really, really uh, vulnerable to. But the truth is that all of us are, are vulnerable to influence, whether, you know, we've, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of older and more mature and established, we're still vulnerable to it. When I was uh, going through this, I thought about this scene from The Two Towers in Lord of the Rings, where uh, Grimma Wormtongue is an advisor, counselor, to King Theoden of Rohan, 
which is one of the nerdiest sentences I've ever said, I think, and just gives a little bit of evidence to the whole high school status thing I was just talking about. Um, but anyways, he's, he's this advisor, King Theoden, this strong, mighty king, but he comes under the thumb of this, of this advisor and becomes a shell of his former self. So Gandalf and his posse, they come and they, they come to liberate Theoden. Um, but Grimm is there whispering in his ear, saying, no, 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 they're up to no good. You know, you should get them out of here. Just, just get rid of them. And, and, and Gandalf, in order to liberate Theoden and enable him to be the king that he is meant to be, actually has to deal first with the influence of, of Grimm. And he speaks some pretty blunt words to him. And honestly, when I, was, when I was reading this and thinking about that, I wondered if J.R.R. Tolkien actually had this scene in mind when he, when he wrote that scene. But in any case, this influence thing, where, where we've got voices kind of drawing us aside, this is a reality for all of us. See, there, there are people who are thirsty. There are people who are ripe for the good news of Jesus. They want to know, and yet they've got voices in their, in their, in their life who are saying to them, what are you doing? Why, why, are, you, why are you going to church why are you reading the Bible? Why are you doing any of this stuff? Don't you all know it's, just a, it's a mirage? It's just a story told to weak and gullible people. It's all just a crock. I mean, these, those voices aren't just in, in people around us. They're, they're in the news media. They're in social media. They're in our government that tell you that authentic biblical Christianity is a bunch of crock, right? That, those are the voices that, that a lot of people are hearing. If you want to hear God's word on his terms... You've got to be really careful about the influences, about the voices you're allowing to whisper into your ear. And I know right now I am an influence as well. I'm standing up here. I'm speaking. I'm trying to persuade you of something. But listen, if I am persuading you to, to make anything else central in your life besides God, if my, if my influence is leading you away from repentance and worship and life in the Holy Spirit, then don't listen to me. Disregard what I have to say. Because it's all about him. Listen to those voices, those influences that actually draw you to him, that draw you into real eternal life. And this isn't just about those who are kind of thirsty and, and seeking. I think, I think a lot of us, maybe some of us who have been Christians for a long time, we're giving way too much space in our life to voices, whether it's Netflix or news or whatever, that are drawing us away from God. So be careful. Be discerning. Be wise in the voices you're allowing to whisper in your ear. And you may actually need to shut some of the vo those voices out. And uh, in, in Sergius Paulus' case, he doesn't actually end up doing that. God does that for him. He intervenes in the form of the apostle formerly known as Saul, in the form of Paul. And I, by the way, I'm just so glad I can finally call him Paul. For like the last number of chapters in Acts, I have to check myself every time and say, it's Saul, Saul, Saul. But finally now we can call him Paul. And verse 9, the name change happens, and this is kind of how it is through the rest of Acts. And, uh, and this is where I need to kind of take a popular preaching point and go, eh, it's wrong. This, the, the preaching point goes something like this. If God can take a persecutor like Saul and turn him into a missionary like Paul, then he can do something incredible in your life too. And it's true that God can work incredible transformation in people's lives, but the name change has nothing to do with it. And here's why. The name Saul is his Hebrew name. That's a name that he had 
both before his encounter with Jesus and after his encounter with Jesus. Saul was his Hebrew name, and when he's serving in mainly Jewish contexts, that's the name that he goes by. Paul is his Latin name. And as a Roman citizen, he would have had that name long before. He probably would have had that name from birth and, and, and through his life. He had that name before and after his encounter with Jesus as well. But the reason it shifts is because now he's going out into the Roman world ministering in primarily Gentile contexts. So the name change is not a lesson about transformation. If anything, it's a lesson about cultural contextualization. It's about, it's about being culturally sensitive, about knowing these are the people I'm reaching. Here's, what, here's, here's how I need to speak. Here's how I need to kind of present myself. Um, so anyways, Paul is here. He's preaching to Sergius Paulus, and he's got Bar-Jesus, Alumus, just whispering in the guy's ear, trying to distract him, trying to pull him away. I just, I can imagine how frustrating that would be to be preaching, and, pe- and someone's like totally in, right? Edge of their seat, wanting to hear what I'm saying, and yet somebody beside them is just like jabbering away, trying to distract them. I asked Nate if this ever happens in youth ministry. He said, it's half the room. And I told him, the only reason I asked you that was because I needed a soundbite for my sermon, and that was perfect. So, <laughs> thanks, Nate. <laughs> um, you know, Paul, Paul's got some words, actually, for situations like this, doesn't he? This is, quite, this is quite the example that Paul gives us here, because he sees this happening, and he straight up spits fire. So, Nate, if you're in the situation again and, and you say these words, you've got biblical backing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Straight up spits fire. And look what he tells him. He sees Illumis pulling Sergius Paulus away, and he says to him, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Whoa! That is bold. And my conflict-averse nature just squirms at it. Like, oh my goodness, how awkward would that have been? But then no, there's also a part of me that is like, it's very cathartic, right? Because there are people that I would have liked to say those words to in my life. And I'm like, yeah, you get them, Paul. You get them. Because there is a place for this. There is, there is a place for speaking words like this. If God leads, just really blunt, bold words. And I um, came across an open letter this past week from a pastor in California Some of you will know the name, John MacArthur. And he wrote an open letter to the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, because the state of California had been posting billboards uh, promoting abortion with Bible verses on them. So like, love love your neighbor as yourself, and then then an ad kind of promoting abortion. And so Gavin Newsom, sorry, uh, John MacArthur wrote this letter to him, and he just ripped him to shreds. Just kind of saying, your soul is in peril. This is blasphemy. And I read that and I go, absolutely. I don't know if a guy like that's ever going to read that, but that is so twisted, so corrupt, it needs to be called out. So there's, there is a place for this. But Paul doesn't, just, Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say these really bold, fiery words. He goes even further, doesn't he? He says, now the hand of the Lord is against you, You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. He doesn't just say you're a child of the devil. Anyone can say that. He says you're going to be blind now. And it happens. 
Sergius Paulus is struck with blindness. He can't see anything. This, this, this powerful sorcerer has been reduced to being led around by hand. That spiritual darkness that existed in him is now, is now made visible. It's now expressed in his blindness. See, Paul, Paul doesn't just talk the talk. He, he walks the walk. He's got, he's got real authority. It reminds me of a story in the Gospels where, you know, a lot of you know the story where Jesus is teaching in a house. House? Oh, that sounded really Canadian. Where he's teaching in a home and some friends bring a paralyzed man and they cut a hole in the roof. They, they lower the man down. And the first thing Jesus says to him is that your sins are forgiven. And a bunch of Pharisees are there and they're just scoffing at Jesus. Like, what? Who do you think you are? How can you say something like that? On what authority can you declare that his sins are forgiven? And Jesus knows that. And he says, hey, hey, you think, that's, you think that's something? What's harder, to say that or to say, get up and walk? He says to the man, take your mat, get up, walk. And he does. See, this, this powerful deed confirms the powerful word that's spoken that's what happens in Acts 13. The powerful words about the gospel that Paul is delivering are, are confirmed by this powerful deed. It, it removes this obstacle. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, he sees this happening. He goes, well, this is something different. This is something real. This is something true. He's amazed at the teaching of the Lord, that this, this teaching has power. It has authority. Just like when we read in the Gospels how Jesus' teaching had authority. People were amazed at it. That's what happens to Sergius Paulus, and he believes. He trusts those obstacles that existed are, are taken away. This is incredible, isn't it? Like Paul is not, he's not God. He's not, he's not an angel. He's not even a sorcerer. He's just, he's just a man like you and I. And yet he speaks these incredibly bold words, including uh, declaring blindness over somebody. It happens. A false prophet is exposed. A, a, a powerful Roman government official is turned to the faith. Like that is remarkable. But of course, it wasn't really Paul, was it? It wasn't like Paul had this ability on his own. I mean, Luke gives it away in verse 9. He says, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way this happened. Because there was actually something going on behind the scenes. It wasn't just this interaction between these three men. There was a deeper conflict going on. The Holy Spirit was at work. So when we're talking about the main players in the story, we can't just stop with those three. We really need to talk about the Holy Spirit. See, this is what, what some people have called a power encounter. A power encounter um, missionary kind of scholars have, have kind of uh, said is this uh, the showdown essentially between the power of God and the power of other spirits or whatever that, that people might worship. It's, it's a display of God's power and might over the other gods and idols of a place. Um, John Wimber says that any system or force that must be overcome for the gospel to be believed is cause for a power encounter like this. Uh, an Old Testament example is the story of the prophets of Baal and their showdown with Elijah, the prophet of God. Um, so they both build an altar. Prophets of Baal 
call out all day for Baal to send fire. It doesn't happen. And then Elijah has his altar just absolutely drenched with water. He prays, boom! Fire consumes the altar, burns it all up. And right away, the spiritual climate of Israel shifts. It changes. Everybody has kind of been in the thralls of this worship of the Baals. And all of a sudden, they realize, whoa, this is who's true. This is who's real. And it, to- it, it, it just shifts things. All, shifts things. All of a sudden, people's eyes are opened up. I read a story, a more contemporary story, about a group of missionaries who were traveling through villages in India. They came to a, a Muslim village or Muslim neighborhood that was renowned for violence and hostility against Christians. And the one, the, most of them said, no, no, we're not going to go to that village. That's, that's a dangerous place. The one missionary said, no, I really, I really have the sense that we're supposed to go there. And the others were like, no, you don't. That's not a real thing. He's like, yes, we are. And so they ended up going. And right away, sure enough, there's this angry mob of, of, of hostile men who surround the truck. The mullah comes out and says, okay, here's the deal. I'll let you preach if you can heal my ailing wife. No, I can't figure out how to heal her, but if you, can, if you pray for her and she's healed, then I'll let you preach. Otherwise, <laughs> he didn't have to say. They're like, okay, so either Jesus heals, heals her or we're in big trouble here. We're getting beaten or worse. So they go in, they pray for the woman in Jesus' name. She is healed. And they end up staying there for a few days, preaching the good news of Jesus. And 250 people end up being baptized in, in that village. It's somewhat recent, just in the last few decades that that took place. This power encounter that displays the power of the name of Jesus over other gods or idols that might be worshipped in a place. And that's what you see happening in Acts. It's really what you see happening in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that the world as it is, 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 is kind of like under the thumb of Satan. That, that we live in this kind of uh, darkness, this spiritual darkness. Our, our hearts are twisted and corrupt. Our minds twisted and corrupt. And, 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 and Jesus has come to break the power of the evil one in this world to shine light into that darkness. We actually see in, in Jesus that the kingdom of God is, is on the offensive, that it's, that it's invading the kingdom of darkness. In Jesus, uh, in, in Mark chapter 3, he, he uses this image of a strong man who's tied up, who's bound, and, and being plundered. And the implication is that this is what Jesus is doing to Satan. He's entered into his territory, onto his turf. He's bound up Satan, and he is looting and plundering Satan, taking back what is rightfully his, setting free those that Satan had held in captivity. This is what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. The kingdom of God is advancing, breaking through, setting people free. And so there are these clashes. There are these spiritual conflicts all around. We maybe don't see them that way, but that's what's going on. As God's people go into the world, there are these power encounters and God is prevailing. But, and this is a key thing, God does not do that in isolation. Instead, he uses flesh and blood people. He uses his servants who are fully surrendered to him to be his instruments in this, in this invasion, in this, in this great liberation movement. And so this is the only way that Paul is able to do the things that he does in Acts 13 is because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It's because he is walking in such intimacy with God that he is able to speak words that he could have never spoken on his own. It's because he is walking filled with the Spirit that he is able to declare things he could have never declared on his own. It all comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need as well today. If we are to see the power of God made manifest in and through our lives in a way that will remove obstacles and empower belief in those around us, we've got to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I know I say this over and over again, but the best music in the world won't do that. The least funny jokes in the world while preaching won't do that. The, you know, the, the flashiest building won't do that. It is as we are filled with the Holy Spirit that God can use us as we walk in intimacy with him, that he can use us to remove those obstacles and empower belief. So you might read this story. And you might relate a little bit more to, um, to a Loomis. You're doing the mishmash, mix and match spirituality kind of thing. Uh, you're, you're trying to take a little bit of the heritage of, of the kingdom of God and mix it with all kinds of other things. It doesn't work. Don't do it. Hear Jesus' call to go all in, to be his disciple. That's, that's the way to life. Otherwise, that, the way of a Loomis just leads to darkness and blindness. You might read this story and you might relate to Sergius Paulus, where you, you, there, there's a degree of openness in your life. You want to hear the voice of Jesus. You want to know who he is. And yet you've got all of these voices in your head pulling you in a different direction. You've got to be willing to shut those voices out, to shut those influences out, to listen to the voices that actually lead you to him and to life in him. And I think a lot of us are going to relate to Paul, or at least we want to. We want to be used by God. We want to live with the kind of authority. Not that we want to be casting blindness on everybody. And honestly, I haven't heard very many other stories like that throughout church history. I don't think this is a common thing. But I think a lot of us want the, uh, that kind of authority, that, that ability to, to speak and to act in the way that God has called us to. We want that kind of authority. We see that there are spiritual conflicts around us. We see that Satan is having a heyday and we want to be used by God to put a stop to that. And you know, we know that we can't do it on our own. We know that we are completely weak and unable on our own. And so we need to be filled by the Holy Spirit. We need to die to the things that keep us from God. We need to be consecrated to him. We need to walk with him as number one in our life by far. We need to learn to be sensitive to his voice. Because, because when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that's when God empowers us to say the things that we couldn't say on our own, to do the things we couldn't do on our own, to declare the things we couldn't declare on our own. If you want to be used by God to see the kingdom of God break in to the darkness and hopelessness of this world, then be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Get the communion servers to come on up at this point, the, the worship team as well. Um, we're we're going we're to participate in communion, this, this act that followers of Jesus have been doing for thousands of years. When we take this, this piece of bread and, and drink this cup, we are, we are remembering what Jesus has done for us. We're remembering that Jesus died on the cross in our place. 
But one of the, the aspects of this that maybe you don't always think about is that when we take communion, we are actually proclaiming that we can't do it on our own. We are, we are confessing that on our own, we are stuck in the darkness. We are like a Loomis in that way. We are stuck in the darkness. We're stuck in a pit of our own making. And it took Jesus entering into creation, taking on flesh, going to the cross, shedding his blood, allowing his body to be nailed to the cross. That was what it took to save us, to have our sins forgiven, to wash us clean, to give us hope, and to give us life. We can't do this on our own. It's all by grace, just as living this life as his people, being his servants, being his instruments in the kingdom of God is something we cannot do on our own. We are entirely dependent on his grace. And so uh, the team's just going to do some, some instrumental here. We're going to have four stations. There's going to be two on both sides at the front of the stage and two in the hallway uh, back uh, on the second floor. And so kind of go to the, the area closest to you. Go out the side and then come back uh, through the middle. Um, and then just, just get, the, get the, the cup and get the bread and then bring it back to your seat and then we'll all participate in this uh, together. And so let me, uh, let me pray and then just invite you to come and receive and, and remember what Christ has done for us. So Jesus, Jesus, we, we confess, Lord, that, that on our own, that we, we dwell in the darkness. We don't know you. And, uh, and we lack the power and the, ab the ability to live the life that you have called us to live. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all of that, you came down to us. You gave yourself in our place so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled to you. This is all by grace, Lord Jesus. And as you call us to be your servants, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be, to be agents of the kingdom of God. Lord, we know that too. We can never do on our own. We are so dependent on your grace, on your mercy to us. So I pray as we take communion this morning, Lord, that you would remind us again of your grace towards us in every way, in every aspect of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.